Luke chapter 9, we're going to be in 18 through 27 today. Verse 18 through 22, I'm going to read right now, and then we'll go back through it. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Um, as I've mentioned several times, uh, Luke is writing this gospel to a man named Theophilus. That's what Luke chapter 1 says. And like you and me, he was not an eyewitness to the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ. How many of you have seen Jesus Christ personally? Not very many people, perhaps maybe in a vision. I don't know. But he had been taught concerning Jesus by people who had seen him or who people had been taught by people who had seen him. And all that Jesus fulfilled and all those things were passed down to him, mainly that Jesus, who Jesus was, the Messiah, the Christ, the way of reconciliation, the way which uh, the relationship between God and man is fixed. It was through the death and, and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that man is reconciled to God. That's what he was taught. In the Old Testament, along with the prophets, if you ever wonder what the Old Testament is about, it's, for, it's looking forward to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's what it's all about. The images, the pictures, the whole thing, the tabernacle, the law, the priests. I and mean, if you ever read that stuff, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm bored. All of it, if you actually get into it, it really is pointing to Christ. And Hebrews is the book that really unlocks a lot of that, which is exciting for me. Um, but the Old Testament, along with the prophets, foretold the Messiah and of his ministry and his suffering and his glory. Could you imagine a book that a thousand or fifteen or two thousand years before Christ came, before someone came, it, it foretold who they were, where they would be born, what they would be like, all these types of things just over and over and over again. So much so that when people look at it, they go, oh, that must have been written after the fact. And so... I don't know about you, but quite often my faith gets challenged. Is this truly, what I, is what I believe truly true, or is it some fictitious thing that has been, uh, you know, devised in the hearts and the minds of men, and how would we know? And so, in light of that, Luke, in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first we, uh, were eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so Luke's whole point is he's been going through all the gospel. And it's kind of interesting. We like to read the Bible, and we like to read what we want to happen into it. He tells you what he's doing right there in the beginning. He says, I'm writing this to a guy, and it's so that you know the certainty of what you have been taught, and it's concerning Jesus Christ. And so everything he's writing up until this point is to prove the fact that what he's already been taught is actually true. And it's not just um, 
hearsay. It's not gossip. It's not tabloids. Eyewitness accounts, orderly accounts. And Luke is a, is a, is a very uh, precise person. He was a doctor, as we read in the book of Acts. And so he's been taking all this time to prove and to remind this dear person, Theophilus, and us, by the way, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He was God in the flesh. It was not a mistake. It wasn't a farce. And so Luke has this this in mind. He's been writing and building a case that Jesus is indeed the Messiah by recording eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And this is one of the greatest uh, importance things of importance because Jesus alone is the way that mankind is saved from our sin and is reconciled to God to whom we must all give an account. Now, for many of you, that what I just said right there, it's as if I was speaking computer code to you. Anybody just kind of heard that and they're just like, yeah, ones and zeros. Thank you. Good night. In other words, we are irreparably severed in our relationship from God, and there's nothing that you and I can do to fix it whatsoever. And it's all up to God whether or not he wanted to fix it or not. And God decided, I love you so much that I'm going to send my son to go pay for what you've done. Now believe upon him. And instead of believing upon him, the world rejects him in large part. But God did it anyways knowing the rejection that he had, knowing that the world would reject him because his love outweighs his desire for vengeance. Isn't that good? (laughs) I'm thankful for that. And when a person believes that Jesus is who he said he is and believes that he died and rose again and that they would be forgiven and given eternal life, they are saved. And the question is, saved from what? Saved from the punishment. And no one likes to talk about punishment. Everybody likes to talk about how to have a great family and run around. Yay. Well, what happens after that? But if they reject Christ and his provision, they await that great white throne judgment. I don't know about you, but it funnels to it in Revelation. It's just everything is coming down into the day of the Lord when we must stand and give an account. And it's not scales based upon what you have done good and what you have done bad. It's not a works-based thing. Although, if you are saved, you will be doing good works, by the way. You're not saved because of the good works you've done. That's the difference between religion and relationship. It's all funneling down to that. And so knowing who Jesus is and believing upon him to save is the most important decision you'll ever make. More than what you're going to do, more than who you're going to marry, more than your, your finances, more than what job you take, more than uh, where you live and all that type of stuff. It is totally insignificant into who you believe Jesus Christ to be. It all comes down to that. Because he made you. And you will give an account to him one day. I, uh, I want to have evidence of that. I don't just want to take it, you know, because someone said it. And many people have this medieval view of Christianity. It predates medieval times, by the way. There's a lot of bad stuff that the church did. But if you look at the New Testament, you see what these people did and why they sacrificed what they sacrificed and what they gave up and what they did. There was a change that happened in their lives. 
And when you look at the Old Testament prophecies just over and over and over and over again, being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, there is no way that any of that could have happened on its own or by chance. I mean, people believe that this world just came out of nothing and, and we all of a sudden just showed up here, then you got to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that Christ is who he said he was. And so that is the most important decision you will ever make concerning Jesus Christ. And Jesus said of himself in John fourteen six, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way to the Father, eternal life, is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. No one else. That excludes a lot of thoughts and, and views and philosophies in the world. How many of you find that offensive? Very narrow. Jesus even said, he, like, that was His little banner He walked around with. You know, the way is narrow. And few are going to find it. Well, what about... No, narrow. You're so black and white and... Narrow. This is it. And it wasn't in a mean-spirited kind of way. In John three sixteen through 18, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever, I like that word, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Shall not what? Perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe upon that Son, would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. And you're going, yay, there's no condemnation, I can do whatever I want. Keep reading. <laughs> but to save the world through Him. That's why God sent His Son. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands, what? Condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody. They're already condemned. We're already condemned. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? How many law, a lot times is it breaking the law to make you guilty of breaking a law? Once. We stand guilty before God, and God knows it, and, our, and the Holy Spirit convicts us, which is sweet. Thank you, Lord, for letting me know. And in verse 36, if you keep going on in John 3, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. That is not my favorite verse. The second part. How many would you like God's wrath to remain on you? You know, I, I think we get to this, you know, at least I have in my past. Because I don't like certain things, I pretend like they don't exist. Anybody else? So God is not wrathful. He's just all love and he accepts me all the time, no matter what I do and what I think and what I say. Does that work in your marriage? Does that work with your kids? Does that work with any but your boss? You know, I just, I don't really like doing paperwork or, or having things in on time. And, and, and I know, I just, I'm not going to believe that you're going to give me any consequences for not doing that. <laughs> so... I'm going to continue to go ahead and, and just do my own little world here in the midst of undermining your authority. I mean, does that work even in our, in our human culture? How much more do you think it works with God? Oh, never thought about it that way, did you? Yeah. But it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see, God sent his Son so that we would be expunged of our guilty record, cleansed totally, past, present, and future. That is called grace, my friends. That is God's love without even deserving. How many of you need a little grace in your lives? How many need God's grace to be poured out upon you and overflowing because you know you're just a big loser? Anyone else besides me? Amen. He's provided it in Jesus Christ. Amen. I love that. And so believing upon Jesus is the most important decision a person will ever make, ever. And I must add that it is not a one-time decision. It is not a one-time decision. It is not a one-time prayer and then live however you want. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's a surrender that goes on until the day you go home to be with Jesus. Or he takes you, comes back and gets you. Amen? It is a decision that changes the direction of your life forever, as we will discuss shortly. Now, how many of you going, well, gosh, I, I prayed for the Lord, you know, when I was a kid, and you know people, and you have questions. I hope you have questions. It's supposed to stir up what if, but regardless of that person you love and know who prayed the prayer but didn't live the life, what about you? What about you today? It's hard, I know. It's narrow. And I don't know about them. I don't, I don't, I can't look into a person's heart or a soul and figure out, but don't change what you think about God based upon an emotional decision, based upon what He says. Does that make sense? That's hard. That's narrow. Does that sound narrow to you? Because I want to think certain things. I want to change who God is based upon how I feel or the experiences I've had. It doesn't work. Narrow. So, with this in mind, Jesus asked his disciples in 1830, uh, 18 through 20, he says, um, once when Jesus was praying in private, he asked his disciples, his disciples were with him, and he said, who do the crowds say that I am? What's the word on the street? Who does who's everybody say that I am? In verse 19, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets long ago has come back to life. And then he says, but what about you? But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? As I mentioned last week briefly, you know, there are a lot of beliefs and opinions about Jesus Christ. If we did a man on the street or a man in the church interview, we asked, you know, who's Jesus? Is he this? Is he that? What are your views? We would have a lot of different views. And we want to, we want to base our views not upon what people think, but upon what God says of himself. The word of God. We go to the word of God. And that is why the word of God is attacked. And that's the very first thing the enemy did in the garden. What did he do? Did God really say? Is God's word trustworthy? Eve, you don't, you don't trust what he says. God, you won't die. Oh, great. Thanks a lot there. We're dead. You know? No, when God says it, it happens. That's when Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, and they, they, he says, stop. Guess what happens? They stop. He says, demons come out. Guess what happens? Demons come out. God says that it happens. His word is trustworthy. And so, who do you say that I am? Or who do they say that I am? And there are a lot of beliefs. Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus is an angel and not from God. 
The Mormons believe that Jesus is Lucifer's spirit brother. The Muslims believe that Jesus was a great prophet. Many people don't even care. Some are very critical of Jesus, like Richard Dawkins, who says, presumably what happened to Jesus is what happens to us all when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. And pretty funny, huh? Not really, in light of what's going to happen to that guy. You know, Jesus asked his disciples who the crowds thought he was, you know, who they thought he was. And verse 19 says something about John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and still others that one of the old prophets had come to back to the life. And as the disciples were out ministering, as they were in contact with real people, they were getting feedback as to who the person of Jesus Christ might be. And as we go out, and as we are salt and light in the world, and we're going to run into people, as we proclaim Christ to people, you're going to run into people who go, yeah, well, you know, he's a great teacher, or you know what, I want nothing to do with that, that's just a boogeyman type thing. Or people go, you know what, I like Jesus, he's great, he's just not going to be my Lord. I mean, from everything, you're, you're going to run into it. Family members, people uh, in church, uh, people on the street, people at your job, at your home, there's going to be tons of different answers. Some seemingly spiritual and some totally irreverent, you're going to get it. Everybody will have an opinion. That's to be expected. But then verse verse 20, Jesus gets specific with his disciples where he asks, but what about you? And that's where it funnels down to for all of humanity. From the youngest to the oldest, what do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? Who is he to you? Not who you've made him to be, but who do you believe him to be? Who do you say that I am? You know, it's the same for us. Just It really truly is. So you were raised in a church, or you'd never heard of Jesus until later of life, or until you heard about him in a philosophy class, or someone knocked at your door. Your parents, your friends, your professors, your Sunday school teacher, your pastor, you fill in the blank. They say something, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus wants to know from you this morning. Who do you say that I am? Where do your beliefs lie? Does it make a difference about the system so much? Does it make a difference about the culture or what church? Or I'm, a, I'm an American, so therefore I'm a Christian or whatever that used to be. It's about him. And he has given evidence from eyewitnesses. Luke is filling this, is funneling it all down to this. He has given the evidence from eyewitnesses and has shown Christ's fulfillment in the Old Testament, the scriptures and the prophecies, his authority and his power and his message of repentance and faith. And so the, the answer to that question of who Jesus is of is most importance this morning. Is he able to save you? from your sin? Do you believe he was sent from God? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that he actually rose again on the third day? Do you believe that he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe he has the power to raise you from the dead? These are all claims that Jesus himself made. Verse 20, Peter speaks up. He has an answer. And Peter answers, God's Messiah. That's who I think you are. You're God's Messiah. Messiah is another word for Christ. Christ means anointed one, the chosen one, the one who was to come. And they would know what that meant, being a Jew, reading their Old Testament. It isn't recorded in Luke, but Matthew 16, 17, the same account, 
written in, from Matthew's perspective, says that Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This isn't something you could Google. This isn't something that could be revealed to you by a teacher or a prophet and all that stuff. In other words, there had to be actual uh, God from heaven the Father had to be had to communicate, open up your mind and your heart to the fact that Jesus is who He is. You see, the spiritually blind cannot see God unless God reveals Himself to them. The spiritually blind cannot see God unless God reveals Himself to them. They're unable. That's why we don't believe, because we can't see Him. Amen? Yet He's given us evidence all over the place of His existence. I mean, I look at the trees, and I look at the flowers, and I look at animals, I look at people, I looked at my you know, newborn baby when I first held it. And I, this just is not a chance. Everything has design and has purpose and has meaning. Think about it. And, God, and the Bible says that you're created in His image. Do you like to create things that please you? Do you like to be in relationships and experiences? Do you... Do you uh, do you, would you believe for a second that a pile of pieces came together over you know, an ancient amount of time and then all of a sudden formed your car outside? No, you wouldn't. You know that behind that vehicle is a thought, is a person, is, is personality. There's intelligence behind it. When I look at you, I see the same thing. You are not, you're designed for a reason. Peter got it, not because of a person, but because God revealed himself to him. You see, Richard Dawkins will remain spiritually dead and blind no matter how much evidence is presented in general revelation, that is creation, let alone the testimony of the gospel concerning Jesus. He's going to remain dead and he's going to remain blind. His only hope is that like Paul, God reveals himself to Richard Dawkins and his mind is kicked into gear by the reality and he humbles himself. Ephesians chapter 2 is a very important thing. It talks about us being spiritually dead, unable to see and to respond to God unless He makes us alive, unless He approaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18-24 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. This is how God works. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the age? I love it how every time on CNN or Fox News or whatever you're watching there, they want to talk about religion. They've got to get people with triple PhDs that come talk about Christianity, which is good, but the Bible says that not many are wise that are called. So, While I can't judge, the odds are that those people have an intellectual understanding, but they don't have a relationship with the Lord. I know it's like, okay, I'm judging. I'm just reading scripture and saying, they never have some, like, one of you and say, hey, what do you think about this? Like, well, the Lord says, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's always, you know, where is the philosopher of the sage? Has God not made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? There's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with all those things. But they can become a barrier, actually, to seeing the Lord. God's wisdom, how many... That's why he was ministering to what what group of people responded to him. It was the poor. 
and the broken and the lame and those who had tremendous things to overcome who were just poor in spirit. And it was the class of, of, of leaders that said, you know what, I'm going to keep my position and my status and I know better than you and you're infringing upon my territory. The, the broken people were like, I have no territory. I've got diseases. Come on in. I know I'm touching touchy ground. You know, I have a bachelor's degree. My wife's educated. We're not, I'm not downing any of that, by the way. That's not it. It's just, do you realize God's way is not our way? Is that okay to say? Let the word be a threat to you in whatever way the Lord wants it to be. But he says, where is the philosopher of the age? Has not God not made the foolish, the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God through the world, I'm sorry to say, for since in the wisdom of God, the, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased that through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We, we often try to win people through intellectual arguments or through lots of things, and we can win an argument but lose the soul. It's like through the foolishness. The Holy Spirit really has to do something. That's why Paul went around and he just said, you know, you got to repent and believe upon Jesus, the Old Testament. He actually was who he said he was. He came and he died. Do you believe? People are like, that is dumb. Show us a sign. And he goes, I can't do anything for you. And the guy was a quadruple PhD in Bible. And he chose, he said, I call all those things. I just put them aside because I choose to just glory in Christ and him crucified. In church, we just need to trust in simply presenting the message of Christ instead of figuring out a thousand ways in which to say it to meet people. Just simply give them the gospel. Jesus loves you. He came and died from your sin. And do you receive him? It sounds like foolishness, but it actually is the wisdom of God. You know, but the hardness of men's hearts are so darkened and deceived, myself being one of those men. And God desires that men know him. And so the Father sent Christ to be the light of the world, to shine a light in darkness. We were in, um, in caves in Oregon. Anybody been in, outside been in those caves in Oregon? You go down like it's 80 feet below the ground and you kind of go all the way down and you're in there. And then we finally get up and we turn off all our headlamps and no one's around. It's just dark. Like I close my eyes and open eyes and I don't know what it is. And it's really interesting. As soon as light kind of approaches from it, you're, you're just like, there it is. And this is what Matthew 4, uh, 6, quoting from Isaiah says, the people living in darkness, that would be the world, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. How beautiful is that? Jesus was and is the light of the world. John three nineteen through 21 says, this is the verdict though. Light has come into the world. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. How many of you know that you are living contrary to what God has. 
And Jesus, the Spirit, has, has come and he's convicted you over areas of your life. But you love darkness rather than light. You don't want to come to the light because you'd rather live in darkness. That's the war. I love my darkness. I don't want to be there. He says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. God revealed to mankind. Peter had seen the light and God, by God's grace, Peter believed. And in John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples and says, I have revealed uh, I, he's praying to the Father for his disciples. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you have gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. Jesus revealed the Father to the disciples. And they believed. That wouldn't have happened unless God, it was God's idea. Darkness, light just doesn't happen in darkness unless someone turns on a light. And God's desire is to turn on the light in every single one of your lives and your hearts. And then for you to go be that light and to go shine it in the darkness. Amen? You are the light of the world, Jesus said. You're a city on a hill. question is, do you have the light? And then verse 21, Jesus says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell his disciples anything. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone after basically he just says, yeah, I'm the Messiah to them, which was a big deal. This isn't because this I mean this is because it isn't time for him to be glorified. That happens actually in John 17 where Jesus prays, Now glorify me with the glory that I've had from you from all eternity. And the people rejected him, and Jesus knew that this would happen, but he did not want to be revealed as Messiah, as king, yet because the view of what that Messiah would be is a king. Again, it doesn't speak about it here in Luke, but Peter in Matthew 16, upon hearing from Jesus what was about to happen to him, he didn't like the news. He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. He began to, to correct Jesus about his theology, you know, what's going to come. And when Peter says, don't, no, this stuff is never going to happen to you, Jesus. You're not going to be rejected. No, that's not the plan. That's not what the Messiah does. I'm reading my Bible. That's not the version I'm reading. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're, mindful of the th- you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. And so Peter, like us, he believed he had revelation concerning Jesus at one moment. And then, you know, that he was the Messiah, but, but he had a different idea of what that meant for Jesus and himself. You ever looked at the Lord and, and thought you knew the Lord and then you realize later, as you're reading the scriptures, God shows you something about himself, like, man, I was way off. Anybody else gone through that? Just me. It's real fun after you've, te- you've taught it, too. <laughs> um, that hasn't happened lately. But again, the people of Israel, they were looking for a king, a political savior. They were under the bondage of Rome. 
How many of you like to be subject to people who tell you what to do and how to live all the time? Especially as a national identity. We, we haven't lived in that kind of yoke and bondage for several years in America. I know we had slavery in America, which is, which is horrible, and we've thrown that off. Praise God. But, you know, we haven't had that kind of, uh, you know, oppression as the Jews did under, under Rome or under Egypt. And so they were looking for that political savior. They were looking for that king. Jesus came first to die for the sins of people, but the second time he's coming, he's coming to rule. First time he comes on a donkey. Second time he comes on a war horse. So we got to get that straight. First time he came as a suffering servant. Second time he's coming back as king. And he will settle accounts. And so Jesus told them that he would be rejected and die at the hands of Israel's leaders according to the scripture, then rise again on the third day. And he told them what that meant for them. Verse 23, and then he said to them all, uh, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me daily. Amen? He says, this is what's going to happen to me. You want to follow me, it's going to look a lot like that. How many of you want to be his disciple? No, it's just about like church and, and, and cool lights and, you know, no suffering involved. No self-denial involved. Just Christian culture. How many of you want to like that Christianity? I enjoy it. It's fun, you know. We get to praise the Lord all the time. But Jesus, their leader, just had said, you know what's going to happen to me? I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise on the third day. Now you want to follow after me? The same thing is going to happen to you. How many of you think of the word you know, disciple? This means Bible study. Yes, partly. A lot more. But this is what it means to be a Christian, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. The disciples had a totally different view at this point about what the Messiah would do. They were looking for a, co- a king. Nothing about a cross or dying had entered their thinking. Jesus was going to be their king and throw out the oppression of the Romans. And because of their understanding, they were expecting that they would rule with him. And that's why they kept trying to tell Jesus, now and Jesus and Peter pulls out a sword are you ready and he cuts off people's ears and John and James God bless them say can we call down fire now on heaven on the Samaritans is that yeah Jesus like no 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 put it away stop you've got your I mean and Jesus chose these guys anybody feel a little bit of comfort thank you because I know I've got it wrong a lot. But Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected by man's kingdom. And if you want to be my disciple, so are you. You're going to be rejected by the leaders and the rulers and, and the powers that be in the systems of this place. Following Jesus, giving your life to Christ is not about praying a prayer and then living however you want. It's about surrendering your very essence to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then in the age to come glory, and then reward, and then rule. Secondary gain, so to speak. But there are four parts of verse 23 we're going to go over real quick. 
I want you to write them down about being a disciple. But real quickly, what is a disciple? Jesus says, whoever, whoever desires to be a disciple, uh, you know, must be, you know, whoever wants and desires to be a disciple. And so what is a disciple? The dis- word disciple means learner or pupil. But this isn't the word in Greek in verse 23. And so the nearly inspired version fails again. NIV. What they try to do, it says, whoever desires to follow me. That's kind of what it is. If you want to follow me, that's the phrase in the Greek. And, and, and what happened is the translators go, well, to follow Jesus, that's discipleship. We understand that, but that's what, not literally what it says. It literally says, whoever desires to follow me, whoever wants to come after me, that is a disciple, by the way. And that's why they put that word there, because it encompasses that thought. I know you're getting into like, okay, great. Now I can't trust the Bible. No, it's... I just want you to know that that's not the word there, but however, it is talking about discipleship. That is exactly what it's talking about. And there are four parts of discipleship. But the word disciple means learner or pupil. And this phrase means to come after. It's the same thing. Jesus is saying, if any man desires to come after me, to follow or to pursue me, let him do these things. And so a disciple is a learner or a pupil of Jesus. And Jesus is asking, if anyone wants to come after me, these certain things must happen. You have qualifications. If you want to be on the team, we practice then and we do that. What if I, you know, if Jesus said, hey, you know, games are on Sundays and we practice Wednesdays and Thursdays and stuff. And if you don't come, you're not on the team. The world holds a pretty high standard. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? This is what you're going to do. And I love this. The first thing I want you to do, it says, the first thing, there has to be a desire. If, if any of you desire to follow me, you got to have a desire. Does anybody have a desire to follow Jesus? If you don't have a desire, that's number one. You're not a disciple. They have to have a desire. Well, what is that? Can I just work that desire up? I think, you know what I do? Lord, I don't want to. So will you give me the want to? Will you work in me to will and to do? Will you change me? Will you make me into a disciple? I want to follow you in theory, but I, not really. And so whoever desires to follow after me, Jesus is looking at these guys going, do you really want to follow me? So do you have the desire to follow Jesus? That's number one. Some people aren't even willing. They love their life the way it is. They don't want to give up anything. And, and if you start messing with that kingdom, it's war. But Jesus doesn't do that. He invites people. If you're willing, if you want to, he invites you to follow him. The second requirement of being disciple, you must deny themselves. There's a willful recognition that where I want to go in my selfish flesh and where God desires to take me are two different places. You must deny what you want to do. And thirdly, take up your cross. There has to be action to actually stop it. It, 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 it complement self-denial in that taking up my cross is daily putting my plans, my will, my wants, my desires, all that would be contrary to the lordship of Jesus to death. How many of you got things in your life that you want to do and you know God doesn't want you to do them? You want to be his disciple, you got to say, okay, never mind. God, what is your plan? But I want to go this and do that and I want to be this and, and go here and there. But what do you want, Lord? I surrender to you. Show me. If I'm going off the path, lead, light, you know, light up my mind. Show me. And then when we are aware of that, we turn and we follow Jesus. <clears throat> We're almost there. 
Fourthly, Jesus said, to be a disciple, you must follow him. Simply put, you have to obey him. You have to obey Jesus. Our vision for our church is simple, to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you obey God, you love him. That's his love language, by the way. Did you know that? You do something for him. You follow him. You actually sacrifice yourself. It's very simple but profound. And so the disciples were actually wakened to the fact that their ideal of a political takeover by Jesus was not going to happen. But rather he was going to be rejected and die and rise again and as he, as, he followed, as he followed his father's will, and so too the disciples would be rejected and most literally, most literally would actually die for their faith, and they too would rise again at the resurrection and then were promised to rule on 12 thrones at the end of the age. But this had to be difficult to hear. But it explains, it explains even further about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we'll just end here, verse 24. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, we'll save it. What good is it for someone to gain their whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I remember when I was 19 and I wanted to, God was calling on my heart to follow him, but the big questions in my mind were, was I willing to give up my friends? Was I willing to give up those relationships? Was I willing to give up music? They were so important to me, so all-encompassing me. But that was the thing that the Lord had said, I want you to surrender it all. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it if someone gains the whole world yet loses or forfeits their very self or soul? And then verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That is is a verse that each of us should seriously contemplate. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ and His words? I think we all go through embarrassment. Has anybody been embarrassed? You know you should say something, but you don't. For fear of everybody not liking what will happen. I think we all go through that. But there comes a place in our lives when we say, you know what, I'm yours. And I accept the rejection of the world. I will stand and I will proclaim Christ in love and in truth. And because the light shines so out of me in this way, people are going to hate me. Hopefully it's not because you're mean. But it's going to come across however they interpret it. When the Lord shines his light in our life and he says, you know what, that has got to go. It's killing you. It's kind of offensive because it applies that I blew it. Gospel is, is like that. It cuts into people's lives and hearts. But ask yourself, am I ashamed of Jesus and his words? <clears throat> Are we ashamed to share the gospel? But we can share tons of other stuff. Are we ashamed to declare Jesus in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation? Are we ashamed to identify ourselves with Jesus and his gospel? If so, Jesus says, The Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father, the holy angels. That's a hard place to end, but that's where I have to end. I'm sorry about that. Better planning.
But if you are, and we've all kind of been there, Jesus says the Son of Man will be ashamed of you, but he doesn't have to be. Amen? <laughs> I love the Lord. He's straight, he straight out gives you truth, but he also gives you the option. You see, Jesus wants us all to be surrendered and disciples and followers of Jesus. He desires that you would desire to follow him. He desires that you would deny yourself. And he desires that you would bear your cross. And he desires that you would follow him obediently. Who does that sound like? That sounds like him, right? He wants you to be like him. And here's the thing. When you're born again, you're born again by the spirit of what? God. And God's spirit comes in you. And guess what God can do? What you can't. Amen? He'll give you the desire. He will help you deny yourself because the Spirit of Christ is living in you now. He will help you overcome what you could never come overcome apart from Him. He will show you how to bear your cross daily, and He will teach you how to follow Him. He's gentle and humble of heart, and He will gently pull on your soul, and He will teach you, and He loves you. And so if you're heavy-hearted this morning, if you're weighed down, and you feel like, oh, crud, I'm run to Jesus the author and the finisher of your faith. He loved and he bled for you, not just to smack you with a stick, but to call you to live the life of a disciple. So choose and step out in faith and see what he does. He will not let you down. And when you fall, he will pick you up again and again and again. 70 times 7. He's so faithful and so good. Lord, we come to you and we ask that we would be those men and women that you've called us to be. Perhaps children in here who are wanting to follow you, wanting to be a light in their school or with their friends, but it's just so hard. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the boldness of, of Stephen when he stood before those crowd, knowing the rejection that he would face. And yet he proclaimed you faithfully. And Hebrews says that the world was not worthy of many of these people. So Lord, I ask that we would be a light, such a bright light, and that it would not be a generic light, but it would be the light of your spirit. So Lord, this has been a long teaching, but I'm asking that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. We say that you are the Messiah, you're our Savior, you're our King. Now, Lord, help us to live it. And we love you. And we ask that you just minister deeply to each heart. And whatever obstacles are in our minds and our hearts this morning that we seem that can't overcome, I pray that we would trust you to show us the way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.